Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning time here at the Digital Cathedral. I'm so happy that you're with me today. Hope you're having a good Sunday morning. Hope you had a good week and you're looking forward to even a better week that's coming. I want to give a shout out to all of you that might be here for the very first time at the Digital Cathedral. It's always a privilege to have people come in for the first time, whether you've been invited or you stumbled on us through Facebook or some other means. We're just glad to have you with us. You've actually caught us at a good time because we are in um, just the fourth teaching that we're doing on some very basic foundations of what has got us to this point of revelation and walking in the kingdom of God, manifesting as sons and daughters. And what I would like to do this week is I'd like to finish up on what I started last week about living with a right perspective of God. This is, this is the first pillar that we're building on the foundation of grace. If you have not been with me for the other three teachings, I would suggest you go back and listen to one where we define grace, which I'll do again for you in just a minute, but we define grace and put that down as the foundation. And then we said there are five pillars that we want to build on that foundation that enable us to live the life that we're living now and to be able to pick those pillars up and develop them even farther. That's what I'm, I want to get back to is getting down and going deeper into things. But I, I felt like this was a good time to just slow down a little bit, go back and revisit some basic truths, some, some solid foundation. And even as we do that, you're going to find that you get more understanding. You're going to get some depth of insight. I don't, I don't know, maybe five, six people messaged me this week saying, you know what? When you hit that point in the message last week or the week before, uh, I had an aha moment. I saw something I've never seen before, and I've been walking in this message for a number of years. So I think this is a valuable time. And I, I, I like to, if, if, no, if it's for nobody else, it's for me. Because every time I, I review these things and teach on them again, it's like I'm hearing them again for the first time. You know what I mean? It's like I, I feel the same exuberance, I feel the same exhilaration as the first time that I discovered the power of this message of a radical, pure, hyper grace that's free from all religious laws and stipulations and have-tos and you-musts and all that, all that stuff that we lived with for so many years. Last Sunday morning, I was a little bit theological on getting a right perception of God. So what I want to do this Sunday morning is I want to bring it right down into some practical realms, into some practical areas. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to look at the, the part of God that is absolutely relational. This, this is a must listen. This is a, this is a must buried deep within your heart. He is a relational God above everything else above everything else. He's relational. Let me tie some of these things together for you from the last three weeks into this morning as we get a right perspective, a right perception of what the Father really is. I want to start over in Matthew chapter 28. When Jesus is ready to ascend back into, back into heaven, he calls everybody together and he speaks over them some, some very important words, in words that I think that we need to uh, uh, embrace and we need to get a real good understanding of. So let me pick it up in Matthew chapter 28, last chapter of Matthew, last few verses. Let's start with verse, what do we start? Verse 17. Let's, let's start with verse 17. It says, when they saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus now, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. 
right? He's got it all. If he has all authority, then there's no, no other entity that has any. You can't have it all in some other power, some other dominion have any. So unless Jesus is, we're misunderstanding what he's saying here. He's all is all. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, both dimensions, both dimensions. So now he's going to give it to them. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to absolve all observe all things I've commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age I am with you always even to the end of the age I am with you always even to the end of the age now just a couple quick observations about this passage where Jesus taught the 11 it was 12 minus Judas I noticed that Jesus did not did not call them or encourage them to start a new religion he didn't encourage them to say, look, you need to go out and start Christianity. Jesus did not come to establish Christianity. I'm sorry. But what he did do, he called them into a community relationship with one another where they could begin to demonstrate the kingdom culture that they had observed and watched Jesus develop and teach for the last three and a half years. Everywhere they went, Jesus was about three things. And we picked this up in, in Mark chapter, actually Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 35. Look, look at this. Just back up a little bit in Matthew. And I want you to see what Jesus spent his whole ministry doing. It was not to establish Christianity. It wasn't to bring about a denominational structure. But in, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about the cities and the villages. Watch. Number one, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And number three, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So if you ever wondered what did Jesus spend his time doing, and this is what he empowered and said, I'm giving you authority to go and do, is to teach, preach the gospel of the kingdom, which he just spent 40 days. It says on, on his resurrection, he spent 40 days teaching the disciples concerning the things of the kingdom. Man, would I have liked to have been at that seminar. That is a seminar I would, I would have paid everything I got to be at to hear what Jesus imparted to those 11 men concerning the kingdom. So he said, I want you to go. He said, don't go and, and set up a building somewhere. He said, I want you to go and make, make disciples of all, all men. So he didn't, he didn't ask them to start a new religion. What he basically did was say, let's expand, let's develop this idea of community. Let's make disciples, let's make followers, let's make disciplined learners that can demonstrate the kingdom culture that you have seen me demonstrate in front of you now for three and a half years. So he, the other thing I noticed is he didn't demand that they be perfect at it. He didn't tell them to adhere to a certain set of laws. He didn't encourage them to say, you, you need to keep to 613 laws of Moses to be able to be uh, qualified, to get your ordination certificate, to be able to go about and do what I'm asking you to do. He said, the only thing that you need is the authority that I have, which I give to you to go and make disciples. All they had to do was two things. Here's, here's what the community was. Simply love one another and let the Father love you lavishly. Let the Father love you condition, unconditionally. And that's really the call that we have today. It's pretty simple. It's to love one another as Jesus loved them. And then I bet you thought I was going to say that we need to love God with all our heart. No, that's not what it's about. It's stepping back and resting in Him and letting Him pour out his love on you. 
any, any response you have to that, any love that you demonstrate toward the Father is just a reaction to the love that he has given you. And the more that you sense that he's loved you, in spite of your whatevers, <laughs> your, all your warts and pimples, in spite of all that, all the shortcomings, the mess ups, foul ups, things you wish you could do over, in spite of all that he loves you, and out of that love for you then, we simply respond to that love. Scripture says we love him because he first loved us. So that was the bait these fishermen carried into all the world, and they did it to such a, a profound level that the scripture says that eventually they turned the world upside down. This message turned the world upside down. And all they did was go about teaching, preaching, healing, loving one another, and allowing the Father to love them lavishly and unconditionally. So what I'm trying to do in this little series we're doing, and I'm called Let's Believe It, here's, here's, here's what I'm trying to do, what I've always tried to do at the Digital Cathedral. I'm trying to bring to the table truth that a grace culture can hold on to, that a grace culture can build on. We're going to look at how a grace community like the Digital Cathedral can demonstrate that kingdom, can demonstrate that culture in every area of our world. One of the things that excited me in coming out of the church after pastoring 50 years, one of the things that really excited me was the opportunity to be able to speak to people in other nations around the world and begin to make connections with people not just in America or just in the state of Texas where I live, but all around the world, that we could begin to impart some truth. We could begin to uh, impart some, some things that would, that would connect us and enable us to demonstrate the kingdom, whether you live in Australia, South Africa, England, Germany, Puerto Rico, Mexico, wherever you live. My heart is to dispense to you things that we can use, practical things, things that we can demonstrate that will reflect the kingdom wherever we're living. So what we did the first week was this. We laid a foundation down. I, I put a definition of grace out there. It's not an all-inclusive, it's not an end-all, be-all definition of grace, but I think it's one that reflects the heart of the Father. So let me just give that to you again, because this is the foundation. The pillars that we're building, this right perception of God, is the first pillar we're building off the foundation. But if we don't get the foundation right, then the pillars are not going to stand. They're not going to be stable, they're not going to be strong. We can't build a culture, we can't build a community on pillars that are, that are weak. And pillars will not be strong unless the foundation is strong. So here's the foundation. Here's the foundation of a grace community. Here's the foundation of a culture that I believe the, the disciples carried into all the world as Jesus carried it into his world before the crucifixion. Definition of grace is this. We believe that, def, that grace is the unconditional love of God that is extended to us, that embraces us, and brings us into his very life. Now there's three points to that definition that I think reflect the perception of the Father that is absolutely right, absolutely spot on, perfect, target. First of all, it says that grace is the unconditional love of God. That means there's no conditions to it. He loves you whether you obey, disobey, rebellious, not rebellious, whether you do your own thing or you adhere to what he would like you to do. It's unconditional. Uh, if we're gonna have a grace culture, grace community, we have to understand that we cannot put conditions on God's love. That's grace. Grace and unconditional love run together. I think grace is the conduit through which unconditional love runs. So if you don't have grace, if you don't understand grace 
to the unconditional love of the Father toward us. Number two, that embraces us. That means it's very inclusive. There's nobody left outside the circle. There's nobody left outside the branch. There's nobody left outside the family. There's one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in all. I think Paul told the Ephesian church that in chapter 4 somewhere, verse 6, verse 7, somewhere in there. So he embraces us. His unconditional love reaches out and embraces us. That gives me security, man. That, that lights me up when I think about the Father embracing me. When I look back at my life and the shortcomings and the foul ups and the mess ups and the mistakes that I've made in my life, just living life. But to know that he still embraces me. And that, number three, he brings us into his very life. He imparts his life to us. He lives his life as us. I'm no longer living for him. He's no longer living through me. We're living one life. His life is now my life. So out of that definition, which again is the foundation, unconditional love of God toward us, through which he has embraced us and brought us into his life. So out of that, out of that definition of grace, we put the first pillar down, which is a right perception of God. And what we did the last, last week, what we agreed about the perception of God was this, <clears throat> that we all agreed that um, we have to see that God lovingly touches every area of our life and how we see him affects every area of our life having a right perception of God affects every area of life my perception of God affects how I see you and how I treat you it affects how I see me and treat me it, it affects the decisions I make the choices I make it affects how I live life itself so getting the right perception of God we absolutely agreed that we all agreed on how we see God touches every area of life every decision every choice the way we deal with people our attitudes um, every every part of our makeup is affected by how we see God second thing we agreed on last week we're a little bit theological last week but we all agreed that until Jesus came, there was no perfect perception. There was no perfect revelation of the Father. Isaiah did not give a perfect revelation. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, David, nobody had a perfect example, could give us a reflection of the Father until Jesus came. Jesus, we decided, we all agreed, we all believed it, that Jesus is the only perfect revelation of the Father that has ever walked the planet. So what I want to do right now is I just want to stop and I'll just throw a few things out there that if you do a Bible study, you know, you might want to take some notes on this. Let, let me say, say this to the side. I never feel bad if you take what I teach and break it down and use it wherever you minister. If you, if you minister at a jail, a home group, a home church, and you, you like the teaching or you feel it's valuable, resonates with you. I, I, look, you have my permission to take and teach what I teach. And I don't care how, you can come down and teach it word for word. It doesn't matter to me. If it's truth, it's truth, regardless who lips it comes from. All right, so Jesus is the only perfect re reflection of the Father. Let me show you a couple things about Jesus out of the Scriptures. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this. All right, now he's the, he's the reflection, he's the perfect image. He's, he's the standard bearer of what the Father is like says in verse 9, For in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in that one man Jesus, 
Jesus was the bringing together of humanity and deity. It's called the hypostatic union. He wasn't 50% man, 50% God. He was 100% human, 100% divine. That's why he could reflect the Father. He was 100% Father. He was the Father in flesh form. He was God incarnate. That's what the incarnation means. In, incarnate, in flesh. He came as the flesh reflection of the Father. And at ninth verse says he, he was filled to capacity with it. The powerful part is in, in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 16. It says, and of his fullness we have all received. So however much you think Jesus was filled with, of that fullness you also have received. All right, so you got that? All right, let's come over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, let me read the first three verses of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, 1, 2, and 3. It says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So God used the prophets as a mouthpiece. Problem was there was a filter on the prophets and some of the filter that they had had to do with paganism, had to do with past ideas and understandings. It was not a perfect representation, but he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But it says in verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. He never appointed any prophet to be heir of all things. That was, that was for the son. That's the son's position. That's the son's place. That's the son's ministry. Now remember when Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. I want you to go. So he's taking this appointment as an heir of all things, makes you a joint heir and says, now go. Now watch verse 3 who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. So that when he by himself had purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, John chapter 14, let me give you just one more. So it says that he's the express image. The express image, there's no... There's no variation in this between Jesus and the Father. You cannot say Jesus was one way and the Father was another way. John chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. That's powerful, brother. He's, Jesus is bold. He steps out and says, look, from now on you know the Father and you have seen him. Philip didn't get it. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Jesus said, verse 9, Philip, have I been so long with you? Have you not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? All right, let's go on. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, the words that I speak to you? I don't speak on my own authority. Let me run that by you again. This is very important. The words that I speak, I don't speak under my authority, but the Father who dwells in me doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works themselves. Man, there's coming a day when we're going to be able to say that. If you don't believe the words I'm saying, if I'm coming up with stuff that, that's so revelatory, you can't catch it. If you don't believe my words, then believe the works. Believe the fruit. Believe what, what's taking place. So here's, here's what it says. In the middle of that 10th verse in John chapter 14, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, I don't speak of my own authority. I'm not coming at you with my own stuff. I'm not coming at you with my revelation. I'm coming to you and I'm speaking what I hear the Father speaking. Now that's an important statement. Here's why. 
anything that Jesus taught, and I want you to get this, anything that Jesus taught is what the Father believed and what the Father practiced as well. There's no variation in what Jesus taught and what the Father taught. There's no variation between what the Father stood for and what Jesus stood for. There isn't any difference between the attitude in the heart of the Father and the, and the attitude in the heart of Jesus. Come on now. It would be totally hypocritical for the Father through the Son to teach us one thing and then turn around and do the opposite himself. So let's all believe it this morning. Let's all agree. Let's all believe that we can take the teaching of Jesus. We can take the words of Jesus as being the words of the Father with no difference. No, 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 no variation, no separation in the words, in the attitude and the thoughts that are presented. Jesus, then through his teaching, reveals exactly what the Father is like, how the Father acts. So if you look at the teachings of Jesus, this might shake you a little bit. So let me get a drink of water before I shake you. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, and they are at odds with what your perceived perception that's been beat into you for years about God, if they're different. If you read what Jesus said, how we treat people, for example, and, it, and that's a variation from how you learned it down at the church house, then you know what? You need to shift. You need to repent. That means change your mind. doesn't mean ball squall and tell God you're sorry. Change your mind. Metanoia. Change your mind. Make a shift. Change the lens through which you have been looking at the Father through to match what Jesus is saying. If what Jesus says about the way you treat people is different than the perception that you learned down at the church house on how God deals with people, his enemies. If Jesus tells you to deal with your enemies one way and Jesus is only speaking the words of the Father, revealing the heart of the Father, then he's not going to tell you to treat your enemies one way while he turns around and treats his enemies exactly the opposite. That would be being hypocritical to the nth degree. So let's just real quick while we got a minute this morning, let's look at some of the teachings of Jesus who was Father, who was God wearing flesh inseparable from the Father in his word, his attitudes, his actions, his dealings with people. Let me just real quick read a couple of passages of scripture. And this is for some of you, you're going to have to refocus some of your beliefs about the Father to align with what Jesus has been saying. I think I spent enough time laying out for you that there's no difference between what Jesus would teach and the Father would teach. Jesus said the words that I speak, I don't speak on my own authority. I, don't, I didn't come up with these words myself. The Father that's in me, he doeth the works. He's given me the words. Another time Jesus said, I only say what I hear the Father say. I only do what I see the Father do. They were one in the same. And that's what a, a manifesting son of God is coming to. That's, that's where we're going. And I'm just taking a short a short sabbatical on those teachings to come back and put this foundation down again real strong. Let's real quick, let's look at a couple teachings of Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, and let's go to verses 43 to 48 just to get a little bit of a warm-up on what Jesus on what Jesus teaches because this is the way the Father is. And I know this is going to be contrary to, to the way that some of us have lived our life up to this point because we have, we have felt justified because of the way we think God deals with people. Here's what Jesus said, verse 43, Matthew chapter 5. 
Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? But I say to you, love your enemies. So that means God has to love his enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those that hate you. So those that don't believe in God, those that shake their fists at God, those that walk as, as atheists, what, what, can, what can be God's attitude? Jesus said, do good to those that hate you. So what's God going to do? He's going to do good to those. And pray for those that spitefully use you and persecute you. Watch this, verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those that love you, then what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? The Pharisees do the same thing. People down at the Fundamentalist Baptist Church, they all love people that they think are running the same direction they are. People over to Charismatic Church, they embrace people that believe in speaking in tongues like they do or uh, baptismal regeneration, baptized in the name of Jesus. They embrace those. Everybody else, no, you're out. And if you just greet your brethren only, what, what do you more than the tax collectors or other people? Verse 48, therefore, therefore, the conclusion of the matter, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. So he lays down how the father deals with enemies. He lays down how the father deals with people that, that speak against him. He lays down how we are to forgive. Let me read another one. Let's go over to Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Luke chapter 6 and verse and verse 35. Luke chapter 6, verse 35 and verse 36. He says, But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So what, is, what, is the, what does the Most High do? What does the Father do? He gives gifts to people. He doesn't ask anything in return. He freely gives salvation. He freely gives everything that he, that he possesses. Everything that Jesus imparted to us through his death, burial, and resurrection, which you were co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-ascended with him. Everything that you have is an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus. He gives to you and asks for nothing in return. Doesn't ask for your faith, doesn't ask for your believing, doesn't ask for you to pray a prayer, doesn't ask for you to repent and bawl and spend all night in prayer and, and get all worked up and emotional over stuff. Doesn't ask that of you. For he is kind on the unthankful, he is kind of the unthankful and the evil. That's not what we were taught. I was taught that he's going to judge and he's going to be harsh on, on the unkind and the evil. Verse 36 says, therefore be merciful just as your father is merciful. What kind of mercy does God have? His mercy endures forever. It's new every morning. In one place in, in, in Paul's writings, um, what is it? I can't remember the exact address, but I think it's in Romans. It says that he made the Jews to be disobedient, made the Gentiles to be disobedient. He says he counted them all in disobedience that he might have mercy on all. That's the heart of the Father right there. Paul caught it. Paul caught it. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, it says that, he, that God actually justifies the ungodly. That's his attitude. He, you never heard that down at church. When's the last time your pastor preached on Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and presented to you a father that justifies the ungodly? Or how about Romans 2, 4? 
that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not, it's not the threat of hellfire and brimstone that causes people to repent. It's the goodness of God. We have not explored the goodness of God to, the, to enough degree. So we all agree. Let's all agree. Let's all believe that God is more Christ-like, that he is more like Jesus than we were ever taught. He's revealing himself to us today. He's revealing himself. His heart is exactly like the heart of Jesus. And when you grasp that, when you get a hold of that, when that settles down into your spirit, you know what it does? Changes your belief system. When I saw it, when I got the revelation of all that stuff, I'll tell you what, my theology blew up. It destroyed my theology. I, I, I have a degree in systematic theology. That means every part of God you take in his, you know, his character, uh, I, I won't go into all, it doesn't matter, but when you, when you have a degree in systematic theology, that means theo, theology, theo-godology, study of God. I have, I have a degree in studying of God, all these aspects. It blew up everything I ever learned. Blew it up totally. I had to relearn everything. So a right concept of God through the express image of Jesus shows us that God is relational. Everything that God does is relational. First thing in scripture shows that God is relational. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. You know what the word for God there is? It's Elohim. That is a plural noun. The first time that God is mentioned in scripture, he chooses to show himself as a triune natured deity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I'll, I will admit that. The word Trinity wasn't used until, I guess, by Tertullian in the, in the second century, sometime right around in there. But the concept of a God who was not alone, never alone, from Genesis chapter 1, but he was in relationship is presented in that very first verse of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. So the Trinity, all the Trinity does is make clear the intent of the Father to be relational. It has always been the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The desire of Elohim. When Elohim created man, you know what he was really doing? He was embracing us. Remember my definition of grace, unconditional love of God through which he embraces us and brings us into his very life. The whole, the whole program of creating you was to bring you into that circle of fellowship and relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't think that you have an exalted position? In Psalms, it says he created you just a little lower than Elohim. Created you just a little lower than Elohim. He brought you in. The creation of man was an expression of the relationship of the Trinity. It says that God created man in his image and in his likeness. When, when God created, created the fish, he went to the sea. When God created trees, he went to the land. When he created man, he went to himself. Man is the only part of creation that came out of the very being of God. He didn't create Adam and Eve and then just leave them out there. I think some of us have that idea that that's how God is. He brought us to the earth and just like Adam and Eve, just put, put them out in the garden, said, I'll see you at sundown. We'll walk and talk a little bit. Just left them on their own. People have the idea that God brought us into this earth with a depraved nature, an endemic nature, lost, undone, separated, headed for hell, unless we do something about it. That's not relationship, my friend. Digital Cathedral, that's not relationship. 
He had fellowship and relationship with Adam and Eve from the start. He's not interested in separation from any of us for any reason, for any cause. In fact, in fact, let me carry it further. I'm getting a little bit wound up this morning. Let me just back it down a lot. In fact, he refuses to be separated from us. He lets us know that he's omniscient. You cannot escape. You can run, but you can't hide. You can't move from his presence. He's made it known to us that there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is his character, the essence of his being, under any circumstance. David said, where can I go and escape your presence? If I go up, you're there. I go down, you're there. I go east. I go wherever I go. In fact, you're there ahead of me. And we know that on an intellectual level. We've heard that taught forever. We know that on an intellectual level, but we need a clear revelation of the implications because we don't on a practical basis believe it. That's one reason that I just stopped the bus and said, let's put this pillar down again <clears throat> because I know and you know that if I were to go to a church today, go to your charismatic church down the street and ask 100 people, what is the most important thing in your day-to-day -day relationship with God? I'd get one of three answers. It would be this. Number one, the most important thing in my relationship with God on a day-to-day -day basis is obey Him. Or the second answer would be do His will. Or the third answer would be to serve Him. See, now, what, what those responses will do, and you've seen it evidence in people's lives as long as you've been following Christ. If you think that the most important thing in your day-to-day -day relationship with God is to obey Him, do His will, or serve Him, those responses eventually beg the question, how well am I doing? How, am I absolutely obeying Him? If not, then I'm going to feel bad. Am, am I doing His will perfectly? Or are there places that I've missed His will? I, I'm serve, could I serve Him more? You see what you're doing? You're opening the door to judgment that you're not doing well, that you could be doing better. And what, is, what, is, what does Paul say in the eighth chapter of Romans? There is no condemnation, therefore, to those that are in Christ Jesus. There isn't any condemnation. So when you ask, when you think the most important thing, and this is what your pastor hammers on, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obey God at any cost. When you think obeying him, doing his will, and serving him is, is the creme de la creme of the relationship, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up for condemnation. Listen to, listen to this old man. Begin to see him as relational and not judicial. Very few people would say the most important thing in my relationship with God, the chief end, is to enjoy his presence and to enjoy life. Very few people would, would be at that place or at that dimension. The, the purpose, let me say it again, the purpose of God creating man was to draw us into the circle. Baxter Kruger does some great teaching on this. It's called perichoresis. Draw us into that circle of life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to enjoy the dance together, to enjoy the experience together. The Trinity and the culture of grace is about acceptance. It's about being loved apart from performance. It's about being embraced by his unconditional love brought into his very life, regardless if I'm up that day, down that day, doing well or not doing the well. 
the Father that is reflected in Jesus is relational. Can I get that through to you this morning? He is absolutely relational. Now, if he wasn't relational, let me just draw some illustrations. If he wasn't relational, when Adam did whatever Adam did, I, I think it's a lot more than taking a bite out of an apple. I don't think that would have caused any ruckus. A relational father, when Adam bit the apple, would still love him, would still accept him, would go looking for him, desiring fellowship from him, would protect him after the fall, would get him away from the tree of life that is, should he eat it, after eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it would put him in a disadvantageous position for eternity. He would promise Adam, Adam, look, what you did is not, is not going to last over the world for the eons of time. It's not going to destroy humanity. That's what a relational God would do. Now, a judgmental God would have said, Adam, you seek me, man. You, done, you jacked up. You fouled up. You messed up. You're going you're gonna to have to seek me. And until you do, I'm withdrawing my presence from you. I'm not coming near you. I can't stand to look at sin. I'm going to wait for you to beg for forgiveness. I'm going to wait till I think that you're sorrowful. Uh, uh, he would be angry with Adam. He'd be punitive toward Adam. He'd make Adam prove how sorry he was and what a disgusting mess he was. And he'd say, Adam, you need to change your ways and you need to change your behavior before I accept you back see many see a God like that that's the wrong perception that's why they don't grow that's why they see people in a judgmental light because the God they serve is judgmental he's unforgiving he's just waiting to catch you doing something wrong a relational God does not keep score a relational God is patient he's kind he's not easily angered 1 Corinthians 13 gives us gives us the gives us the, the rundown on that. I'm not going to read it, but verses 5, 6, and 7 tells us how the character of God, I guess I better read it, how the character of God is actually revealed. This is how God, this is how, this is how God acts. This is, this is how God, his character, this is what he's like. Verse 5, it says, love, God is love. Love does not behave itself rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoked does not think evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. God never fails. He endures all things. He hopes all things. He doesn't keep score. That's 1 Corinthians 13, that, that, that love chapter, that's, that's the very express image of the father in that. All right, let, let's look at Abraham. In the life of Abraham, a judicial God would have rejected Abraham right from the start. You remember when God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I've chosen you. Now, here's what I want you to do, Abe. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. Your, I want you to leave everything that's familiar. I want you to put it down. Abraham's 75. 75, and he's calling for a radical change. He said, you go to a land that I'm going to show you, but I, you, need to, you need to start new. Leave everything here. So what does Abraham do? Takes Lot. He takes Lot. He goes with Lot. That's, he, he rebelled. He did not obey God. God. He went against what God told him to do. He gets to the land that God shows him. God said, this is the land right here. Every place your foot touches belongs to you. This is good land. I'm going to prosper you in it. 
A famine comes. Circumstances change. And what does Abraham do? Goes down to Egypt. Let's, and lies and says, my wife is my sister to save his own skin. Then, then he does not wait for the promised son. He goes ahead and takes matters into his own hands. And Ishmael is the result. So out of all of that, out of all of that, a judgmental God would have said, Abraham, you are disqualified. I'm going to take your ordination certificate away from you. You're not qualified for ministry. You're not going to be the father of many nations. I gave you your chance. You blew it. From the very start, I tried to cut you a little slack, but you took a lot. You went to Egypt. You, you messed up with your wife's handmaid. I, can't, I cannot allow. That reputation will not fly to do what I want done. Now, a relational God would say, I'm not going to shame you. In fact, Abraham, I'm going to reaffirm you. Because the gifts and the callings that I put on people's lives are irrevocable. You cannot take them back. They're stamped on you for good. Now, what you do with it is up to you. But I'm going to reaffirm for you. So in Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15, I want you, I want you to see this, this is how a relational God acts. This is how a relational father acts after he has so messed up. Every, every, every guy that God called in the, in the Old Testament really had their problems, to say the least. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I bet Abraham laid awake nights thinking about it. Man, God told me not to take anybody, and I took a lot. God gave me the land, and I left it and went down to... I went down to Egypt. I really blew it with this Ishmael thing. I bet he worried about it. So God says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. Wow, you talk about grace. You talk about an unconditional love that embraced Abraham and brought him into the very life of God. That, that Genesis 15:1 does the trick. A judicial God would have had the prodigal son's father, when the, he saw the boy coming, he would have went back in the house and waited for the boy to come to the door. And he would have said, son, come and sit down. I need to talk to you. I'm going I'm to give you some lecture. I don't you to ever try pulling that stunt on me again. Do you know what the relational father did? He laughed with joy and threw a party for his son, no ifs, ands, or buts. Never asked for a confession. The boy had a confession all made up in his mind. I'm going to go back to my father and here's what I'm going to say. Father said, I don't want to hear it. All right. A judicial God would have told a parable where everybody got paid according to the amount of work that they did, the hours that they put in. You know what the relational father does? Here's the parable Jesus told. He told the story in a way that the owner lavished generously on everybody the same amount of money regardless of the amount of hours they work. Now to the religious person, that won't fly. Bless God, I've been in this church all these years. I've been on the elder board. I have done this. I've been in ministry. I, I've sacrificed. I've tithed. And this guy comes in and he thinks he deserves the same position that I have. That's what that parable is all about. It's not based on your works. It's not based on how well you've done. It's based on His grace. His grace is unconditional love. No conditions. Doesn't matter when you came in. Doesn't matter when you started work. If you don't come in till after you die, the choice is still going to be there. See, your spirit doesn't die. You're a spirit being. That doesn't die. That doesn't cease existence. 
His mercy endures forever. So do, do, do you begin to get the picture of how relational he is? A relational God solves the problem of sin before it ever came. Before ever Adam messed up, before you ever messed up. He said, I know what I need to do. I need, I need to solve the problem before there's a problem. So he slays the lamb before the foundation of the world. See, a, a judicial God might stop at John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know that verse. And everybody, the perishing, you think means go to hell. Uh, it does not mean that. I've, I've done a teaching on John 3.16. I think I've, it's behind me. I think I already did that one on John 3.16. If not, you need to go back and look at it. But we don't read verse 17 with it. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world so that the world, the cosmos, everything that is in it through him might be saved. See, verse 17 is the grace embrace of the unconditional love. Verse 17 is the Father bringing us into his life. The scripture starts with a relational being in Genesis 1-1, and in the book of Revelation, it ends in relationship. Now I'm going to walk you through a couple of things in Revelation that maybe you've never noticed before. Let me go to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. Let me just pull a couple of things out of here. I want to show you how relational the Father is throughout the eons of time. You got this? All right, you, st you still with me? Revelation chapter 22 verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And all the church stands up and cheers because he says those that have done the commandments, they have the right to the tree of life and they shall enter into the gates of the city. Now watch this. One chapter before, chapter 21 and verse 8. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelievers, the uh, abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire with brimstone that is called the second death. And we look at that in, in, in uh, 21.8 and we say, you know what? You deserve that, bless God. Those were those, that's where those guys need to go. They need to go straight into that, that lake of fire. That's, that's where they, they, they need to go. A judicial God would say, good. You, you had your chance. You lived your life. You could have accepted me. You didn't accept me. Now you can just burn forever. But what's really going on there? Now watch when we come back to chapter 22, verse 17. Watch this. Let, let, me, let me back up to verse 15. We just read verse 14 that said, those that did the commandments came into the tree of life. It says in verse 15, but outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and whosoever loves and practices a lie. Now wait a minute. They were just cast into the lake of fire in chapter 21 and verse 8. Now all of a sudden they're showing up outside the gates of the city in chapter 22 and verse 15. Outside of the dogs, the murderers, the idolaters, the sexually immoral. What's going on here? Here's what's going on. That lake of fire in 21.8, our God is a consuming fire. 
they, they are going through a, a purification process. Can I tell you probably most of us going to go through a purification process because we aren't perfect? But the, the same people, I don't want to lose my train of thought, the, the same people in chapter 21, verse 8, now appear outside the gates in 2215. Now watch what happens in verse 17 of chapter 22. All right, so you got these people outside the gate. They, they, they can't come in. They're, the others that did the commandments, they've come in. But now what, what, what happens in verse 17 of this last chapter, this is the last chapter of the last book. The spirit and the bride say, come. They're, they're calling for the people in verse 15 to come in. And let him that hears say come, and let him who thirsts come. Whosoever desires, let him take of the water freely. What is going on here? These people that died sexually immoral, the liars, the thieves, the extortioners, threw into the lake of fire, went through a purification process. All of that was burned off of them. They are now outside the gates of the city, and the spirit and the bride are saying, come on in, come on in. It's fine. You can come in. See, death is not the end of the story. What kind of a little God would we have if death was the end of the story? My father is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's present right there. And he's telling them to come in. In fact, in, 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 fact, in chapter 21 and verse 25, it says, And the gates shall not shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. So the gates of the city never shut. The gates of the city never shut. Why? So we can get these people outside the gate that need to come in to come in. Now listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. It's their choice. They can come in if they want to come in. God, I don't believe God will ever take away your choice. But neither will he ever give up on you. The, the, the ability to make a choice will never end. It just depends how high he needs to turn the revelation dial, how high he needs to turn the unconditional love dial. You're, you're wired to respond to unconditional love. You're wired to respond to the voice of the Father. So now it's just a matter of how high he turns the intensity, not of torture. You're not throwing you into an eternal conscious torment, torture in fire forever. Man, that's not my daddy. I'm sorry, that's not what Jesus reflected. What Jesus reflected is more in line with chapter 22, verse 15. Those who kept the commandments, those who love God, come on in. But then those that, that are messed up, he takes through a purification process and brings you to the gate that never shut, and he says, you can come on in. The relational father is deeply entrenched. The teaching of a relational father is hard, hard, hard on the religious mind. Because the religious mind thrives on a judicial God, thrives on a punitive God, thrives on a God that takes his pound of flesh. But that's not the God that Jesus revealed. Jesus would never do that. And if Jesus said, I only reflect the Father, I only say what the Father says, these aren't my words, they're the Father's words. My teaching, the Father's, what the Father would say are absolutely joined together. Paul said, this is it, man. He, he said, the Father already solved this. Look at this, 1 Timothy chapter 4. This is, this is another passage you never heard in church. 1 Timoth Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, and let me read just verses 9, 10, 11. Watch this, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. 
He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. He said, this is important. You need to accept this one. So let's all believe it. Can we all believe this? For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. When is the last time you heard in church that he's the savior of all men? Now it does say especially of the believer, but not exclusively of the believer. See, the believer was back there in, 20, in chapter 22, verse 14. They just walked right on in the gates. But he's still the savior of all men. He brings them through a purification process, brings them back to the gates, chapter 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come on in, you guys. Come on in. You can come on in, drink the water freely. Whoever wants to come in can come in. Your choice, your call. You can stay outside the gates as long as you want to stay. But I'm telling you, you can come in at any time. Because it says in, in chapter 21 and verse 8 or verse 25 that the gates to the city will never, ever, never, ever, ever shut. Whew. I've done a lot of preaching this morning. So the finished work of the cross makes it possible for us to see all men like the Father sees them, which is relationally. Not seeing any man after the flesh. If, if God loves and he never stops loving, then can we do the less? God's love proves that nobody, especially you, are excluded by his pure love, by the embracing of his, his character and the bringing into his very life. Our Father began creation relationally. And in fact, the last verse of the book of Revelation, I shouldn't have closed my Bible, but the last verse of the last chapter of the book that is recorded says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you a l l be with you all his grace is with all the first pillar in a grace culture on this this foundation of God's unconditional love extended toward us that embraces us and brings us into his very life. First pillar we build up is a right perception of the Father. If you don't see God right, you're not going to get anything else right. So we've got the first pillar down. I'm going to go start the second pillar next week. You don't want to miss it. All right. So I've, I covered a lot of territory this morning. I know that I disrupted some traditional thinking. I know I upset the theological card of some of you. But you go back and listen to this again. I want you to pay special attention to that. The, what I taught you right now out of, out of Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22. Gates never shut. All of, the, all of the, the, the characters are thrown into the lake of the fire, but they show up outside the gates of the city and they are invited in. The spirit and the bride say, come on, man, drink of the water freely. That's my father. That's the father that Jesus presented. That's a God that is relational. He's not judicial. He's not punitive. He's not angry. He's not upset. He loves all of us exactly the same. He will love you whether you come in at the gate, having come through the lake of fire, or you live a life of obedience to him and, you know, live, live with him in relationship here, and you just transfer it over into the next level of consciousness. He loves everybody equally. All right, I think that's enough for this time. God bless you. Thank you for being with me this morning. See you Wednesday night at The Secret Place, and we will cover some more of this at that time. 
Don't forget, next Sunday morning, 10 a.m., same time, Central, right here at the Digital Cathedral. God bless, and have a good week.